Hello and welcome to the inaugural podcast of Africa Past and Present. I'm Peter Oleggi. And Peter Lim. And we are podcasting from the campus of Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan, United States of America. It is uh, January 15th, 2008, and we are launching this podcast because Africa matters, and there's not enough knowledge and information out there in the community, both academic and non, about Africa and its people. If you think of the United States, uh, about one in seven Americans trace their origins to the African continent, and so the American legacy is really one of shared inheritance with Africa. Africa also has global implications, economic ones, political ones, and most definitely cultural ones. And we also believe that like other continents, Africa deserves to be studied, deserves to be understood and discussed in its own right. And this is what we're going to try and do on this podcast every two weeks on the 15th of the month and on the last day of the month. We're going to feature news, we're going to feature analysis and interviews and conversations with scholars and practitioners in African studies, African history, and so on. Yes, it's, uh, uh, it's an exciting and vibrant forum uh, podcasting, especially for communication, and it opens up a whole new innovative um, horizon for interaction, not just across this country, but with our colleagues, uh, uh, scholars, activists, and, and others in Africa itself. And I might add that there are already websites in Africa with podcasts. One that comes to mind is the, is the excellent online newspaper, The Mail and Guardian in South Africa. Um, and so it's been nice for us here to catch up with our, with our African friends who are already podcasting. So yes, we're looking forward very much to uh, presenting uh, each month um, uh, a range of very interesting uh, interviews, uh, information about events, new books, new projects, conferences, and so on and so forth. Today, our first featured guest is going to be Sheikh Babu, who is an assistant professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania. And you will hear from Sheikh later on in the podcast discussing his new book, Fighting the Greater Jihad, on uh, the history of the Muridiyya, a large Sufi order in Senegal. But before Sheikh Babu's interview, we're going to have a conversation with uh, Peter Lim, my co-host. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Peter. And um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, at the moment, I'm uh, uh, African Studies Bibliographer and uh, Adjunct Associate Professor in African History here at MSU. But as some of the listeners will know, I wear a lot of different hats. Uh, some people will know me from way back on H Africa, which also uh, is based here at MSU. Uh, and in, in the last decade in H Southern Africa, where I've been online editor and coordinating review editor. Um, my interests in Africa go back a long way uh, in terms of personal, uh, family involvement, political involvement, research, um, uh, networking, archives, and many other things. So I have a, a wide uh, Pan-African interest. Um, for instance, uh, in 2007, I visited Nigeria to help develop MSU strategic partnerships. 
Uh, I attended the second European African Studies Conference in Leiden, Holland, um, uh, where I signed a contract for a new book there on African responses, African indigenous responses to colonialism in Africa. Um, and many other projects are, uh, are taking my attention at the moment uh, on, on some of these issues. That's great. And what were your contributions to this uh, podcast be um, during the course of the next few weeks? Well, I'm already uh, searching out uh, some very interesting speakers. And uh, to mention one in particular, I've lined up Professor Bob Edgar from Howard University, who will be talking to us in March. Uh, Bob Edgar uh, is a, a fascinating historian of South Africa who's written on, for example, uh, the prophetess Nontata, whose, uh, whose grave he discovered in Pretoria and arranged for the repatriation of her remains back to the Eastern Cape. Um, uh, Bob has also written on uh, uh, Edwin Moffatsonyana, the uh, Lesotho-based uh, ANC, SACP leader, and published a biography of him recently. And he, he, he's really a very interesting person. He's been involved with a, a major project at Howard uh, University dealing with African-American, South African linkages. And so I'm sure uh, in particular, that podcast will be very entertaining. But I've got my eye on a number of other people. We're drawing up a, uh, a very uh, interesting uh, list of speakers that will uh, keep people uh, interested over the next uh, year. That's wonderful. Your uh, most recent uh, book uh, about to come out, uh, a biography of uh, Nelson Mandela with Greenwood Press. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, this work? Well, yes. It, it, in some regards, it's modest because the Greenwood biography series, in which uh, a tome on uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu has already appeared, uh, written by Steve Gish, the series is aimed uh, at undergraduates and general readers. Uh, and so it was rather a challenge for someone like me who's always deeply immersed in, in research uh, with primary sources to, to spin off and, uh, and uh, conjure a, a more broadly based uh, uh, biography of Madiba. But I as I got into it, I, I found that there were gaps in the other, uh, the, the plethora <laughs> of biographies of Mandela, including the recent one by Tom Lodge. Uh, for example, there's very little said either by Madiba himself or his biographers about his father, uh, who is quite an interesting person. Um, I was also able, through the uh, assistance of the well-known filmmaker Peter Davis uh, and his archive, which is at Indiana University, to scour interviews done with Winnie Mandela and uh, other uh, members of the family uh, done underground when Peter Davis was making uh, some documentaries on Nelson and Winnie in, in the 70s and 80s. So that also gave me some interesting insights. And so in, in more ways than one, I've, I've tried to insert into this fairly broadly pitched biography some some new material and some new ideas and one of the ideas that I have also put forward in a in a in, in a in a review in the Journal of Southern African Studies is this question of um, did Nelson Mandela win on Robben Island or did the system 
in part grind him down and uh, perhaps make it a little bit more uh, uh, probable that there would be compromise on basic aspects of the ANC's Freedom Charter. So that's one question that I toss around in this book. But yes, that will be out on, I think, on the 30th of this month. That's great. We're looking forward to reading that. And what are you working on uh, now? What's your newest project, Peter? <laughs> well, besides from teaching African historiography to the graduate students this, this semester, I'm doing a, a range of things, including developing MSU's uh, extensive African activist archives, and we could talk more about that in a future podcast. Um, also developing the African Studies Oral History Project of notable Africanist figures associated with MSU, and, and that, that will be launched uh, sometime this semester as well. Um, but as well as that, I'm helping to coordinate visits uh, from Nigerian partners. Um, I'm also writing a feshrift in honour of the Southern Africanist historian Norman Etherington, and working on um, a couple of other books that I mentioned earlier, the, the, the Indigenous Responses to Colonialism and the selected works of uh, Dr. Nguma, the, the president, uh, well before uh, Jacob Zuma, Dr. Nguma was the president general of the ANC in the 40s. So that, that's the, his, his works, if you like. But that's probably enough about me. Maybe I should uh, turn the questions back and ask uh, how you uh, got involved and what your agendas at the moment are. Well, I was born in Rome, Italy in 1970. And I grew up there. And as you know, Italy is part of a, of a Mediterranean world that uh, includes uh, an important chunk of the African continent. And in fact, um, uh, on my mother's side, uh, uh, her father's family name uh, has strong connections to North Africa. Uh, Barbarito is, is the Spanish diminutive for um, Barbary, the, the northern uh, part of the African continent. And so uh, I may have uh, some, some genealogical connections <laughs> in addition to my professional and personal interest to the African continent. And that's a long-winded uh, way of saying that, you know, when you were in the Mediterranean, Africa is not very far away. And when I was growing up, South Africa and apartheid and white supremacy uh, was very much the major issue of the day. And as a teenager, I became uh, interested in uh, the political movement and the fight against apartheid. And it was around that time that I came to the United States and found myself on a campus where the undergraduates were very, very actively opposing investment by their university in South Africa. They basically called those investments uh, blood profits. And uh, they had built shanties and were leading demonstrations on the campus in New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, I was superficially uh, involved in that as a, as a young teenager and became aware of the importance of the struggle in South Africa. And so I had a political interest in uh, the country of South Africa. And when I went to college, I started reading more and getting myself informed and sort of uh, uh, mixed uh, my political interest with some, some developing professional ones. And I had a chance to go to South Africa uh, in 1993, in January of 1993, and to be a sports coach in a very poor area outside of Cape Town called Kailicha. A time of very great change. A time of uh, great change, a great uh, uncertainty as well. Uh, because in January of 1993, uh, a date for the elections, the democratic elections, had not been set. 
and the ground rules were being made and in some ways unmade uh, every day. And in fact, uh, during my stay there, Chris Hani was assassinated and the country was thrown into turmoil, somewhat reminiscent of, of what is happening today in Kenya. That's a, a very uh, valid point, and uh, that reminds me that Chris Honey was a guest of one of our future speakers, Ken Harrow. Uh, I think in 1993 he came here to MSU. Um, but Peter, how did you get uh, develop this interest in in Af the history of African soccer? Well, actually, it occurred uh, on a sandy field uh, in Kailicha in the middle of uh, 1993 when uh, on a hot day uh, there were about 200 people who had emerged from uh, their shacks to watch a seemingly meaningless game between 12-year-olds, um, the team that I was coaching uh, versus a, a rival school. And it just occurred to me that you know, in, a, in an area with no cinemas, no shopping malls, no uh, infrastructure whatsoever, except really the school and the police station, uh, this seemingly meaningless game of soccer was actually the entertainment for the day. And I thought, well, if it's happening in 1993, it probably happened in the past as well. And I went off to the National Library to try and find out a little more about it. And uh, I was shocked to discover that there was no single scholarly book on the history of soccer, the sport of the black majority in South Africa. It's as if you, one went to the uh, library at your university in the United States and saw that there was no books on the history of baseball. It would be preposterous. And I might add here that uh, Peter Alegi has filled that, that gap uh, with his excellent book, uh, La Duma, History of uh, Soccer in South Africa, which was published by the University of KwaZulu-Natal Press uh, a few years ago. In and 2004. Uh, right. And of course, with uh, South Africa hosting the World Cup soccer uh, uh, in 2012? 2010. 2010, I'm jumping ahead. Then I can imagine that we can have some really wonderful uh, podcasts around those issues as they develop. Um, I know you've been very active writing about the forthcoming World Cup, so maybe you could outline very briefly some of those issues as if to foreshadow some future discussions that we have. Yeah, what I work on really is the history of sport and uh, leisure in Africa, but also in a comparative way. And uh, the World Cup of 2010 is a great way to try and look at Africa as part of this global world in which we live. It is very much a tournament that seeks to present an image of a modern, uh, technologically sophisticated uh, African country to the world. But it's also a tournament that uh, has resonance locally in South Africa in the context of a changing politics and the changing economy. So I think what we can do is really talk about the way in which the country is preparing for the World Cup and uh, see what the issues in terms of race, in terms of economics, in terms of culture, in terms of uh, other uh, important uh, dimensions are. And uh, we'll be talking to various people through the course of the next uh, few weeks and months. And it's a story well worth uh, visiting and, and visiting again and, and looking into in some depth. Great. Uh, well, I think uh, we've probably had uh, enough from us two for a while. Peter, would you like to now introduce our, our first uh, speaker, uh, Sheikh Babu? And I might add that uh, it's a rather uh, 
auspicious but also sad time uh, to be uh, talking about the Murid because their spiritual leader has passed away in the holy city of Tuba in Senegal uh, uh, this week and the president of Senegal declared three days of uh, national mourning as a result. But I can think of no one better uh, uh, placed except perhaps MSU fellow professor David Robinson to speak uh, about the Murid. Shikanta Babu is an assistant professor of history at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And in this book, Fighting the Greater Jihad, he explores the forging of Murid identity and teaching around the person and the work of Amadou Bamba, its founder. He makes a compelling case for re-examining the history of Muslim institutions in Africa and elsewhere in order to appreciate believers' motivation and initiatives and the religious culture and education beyond the narrow confines of state building, political collaboration, and resistance. It is a very fresh and original book. It offers novel interpretations of the early years of the Muridia movement, and it provides useful correctives to earlier scholarship on a range of issues. I think fighting the greater jihad will dramatically alter the perspective from which scholars study mystical orders of Islam in Africa and elsewhere. to begin our conversation with Shehanta Mbaki Babu, who is a close friend of ours and uh, has been involved at Michigan State for the last 15 years and just come back to uh, give a talk and a roundtable on the occasion of the appearance of Fighting the Greater Jihad, which is a fascinating title in these post 9-11 days. Sheha, could you Give us a little autobiography, a sort of intellectual autobiography that would lead up to this book. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dave. It's, it's always a pleasure uh, to be with you and to be my alma mater and meet mm -hmm. new friends. And um, it's a great pleasure and really enjoy the two days that I spent here and wish I could stay longer even. Um, talking a little bit about myself, um, uh, I was born in Senegal uh, and uh, I grew up in West Central Senegal, which of course is uh, what historians know as the Peter Basin of Senegal, mm -hmm. which is the heartland of the Muridia. Uh, I grew up there, went to elementary school and secondary school there, and then I went to a teacher training school. Uh, and then later on I get to the University of Dakar where I pursued history. And um, as I, you know, uh, tell the story in the book, I, I really get, uh, got interested in in uh, the Muridia and Islam in general, at my third year at the University of Dakar, and that's where I caught the virus, and then you know the rest of the story. And you came in, we met, you talk, and you read my thesis, and uh, you liked it, and you thought that I could, I should pursue this, and uh, and um, uh, you were able to uh, find the way of getting me here to work with you. And uh, you know, this is the history of the book, and the book is is uh, the result of the work I've done with you and a dissertation I wrote at Michigan State, which mm -hmm. later was revised and enriched uh, and published by Ohio University mm -hmm. Press. Could you say a little bit about the sources that you've brought to bear on reconstructing the life of Amadou Bamba that previous scholars had neglected or not even known about? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the um, uh, perhaps originality of my book that I claim is that 
uh, I think I brought in uh, forth um, many dimension of the muridia that that got lost uh, because of the difficulties of accessing these kind of sources, the uh, what I call internal murid sources or murid voices or or just. Um, the difficulty of writing about the history of the Muridia from within because of many different obstacles. Some of those obstacles are uh, cultural um, and others are um, linguistics because many of the literature I use in my, in my book are in Arabic, um, some are in Wolofal, that is Wolof written with Arabic sources, and others are oral sources coming from, from sources within the Murid, Murid, Murid order. Uh, the originality I claim is that I was able to blend those internal sources with the classical sources of the Muridia, which are icarval sources and secondary sources coming from uh, French uh, writers, French colonial writers. Mm -hmm. And what contribution does that allow you to make, or, or what is the emphasis mm -hmm. of the book mm -hmm. that was not there in the previous scholarship on the Murids? Mm -hmm. I think one thing is that I, 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 I hope I, has been, I have been able to do, which was not done before, was to analyze the Muridia from a religious and cultural perspective. Mm -hmm. I think most of the writing done on the Murid was kind of instrumentalist approach, uh, looking at the political and economic dimension of it, um, peanut cultivation, adaptation mm -hmm. to colonial rule, and so forth. But not much about really um, uh, the Bamba thought in terms of education, in terms of religion, and so forth. And that's what these internal sources were able to actually uh, help me access to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you uh, have to say about the pedagogy that Amadou Bamba developed uh, well over a hundred years ago mm. and its relation to the ability of the Murids to continue to expand, to mm. go into the town, to go into Europe and North America and yet maintain their very strong mm -hmm. Murid identity? Yes, I think, um, well, the, the title of the book then come in the picture because this great jihad that I talk about in the book is really about education. Um, you know, uh, Sufis in general think of, of the great jihad or the jihad of Akbar, the jihad of Akbar, which is the jihad against our uh, carnal soul or the jihad against our own, our own weaknesses as a human being is the larger jihad. The jihad of the sword for them is, most, is the small jihad. And my understanding of the Muridia is that it was a way for Ahmad Obama to fight his great jihad. And it's a great jihad he fought for education. So that, uh, to me, education was really central to Ahmad Obama's agenda. And uh, this idea of education and how it developed over time with Ahmad Obama himself and later on with his disciple ran through whole, the whole book. But in, in the, uh, to make a long story short here, what I tried to do was to kind of show how Amadou Bamba tried to design a, a, a system of education which had two objectives. One was to protect people against what he saw as the corrupt uh, French cultural influence and also influence coming from traditional world of culture. Mm -hmm. And then second, how can you devise this type of education so that he may fulfill a holistic approach of it. That is, that not only it educate people that are thought of as uh, uh, needing education, that is the youth, but also older people. Uh, that is to cover the society as a whole. How can you protect the society as a whole against this corrupting influence coming from the French and coming from traditional uh, wall of culture? 
And one way of doing it is, is what I explained uh, year, yesterday in my talk, is a kind of three-step education. One would be the talim uh, or the education of the brain, that is the classical type of education that people go to acquire at school. Then the tarbiya, which for Amor Bamba was really critical because talim was always done in Senegal. But his problem was really the tarbiya because tarbiya, that is the education of the soul, is really one can protect people and actually correct uh, uh, people's bodies and remake people. And then you have the tarkhiya, which was a kind of um, capstone type of education that was uh, mostly directed toward the leadership. That is, educate people so much so that just his presence alone and his guidance you know, would be enough to kind of save a people's soul. And um, th this kind of education that Ahmad Bamba developed in the late 19th and early 20th century um, get carried on actually by Murid. Um, in the, at the time of Ahmadou Bamba and his earliest followers, this education was mostly done in rural areas, in the, what the uh, Cruz O'Brien and others call the, the Dara Tarbiya or the, school, the working school in the countryside. Then what happened with Murid migration and the expansion of the Murid order into cities is that they created another framework, the Dahira this time, which was used as a kind of um, tool similar uh, to the, what the uh, 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 Dara or working school was doing in the rural area, but in a different setting and meeting different goals. Because in this time, people were dealing with uh, um, blue workers, uh, murid traders in the cities and murid urban dwellers who may have a, a kind of uh, 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 needs that are different from the need of the people in the rural area. Then Dahire became um, the instrument to kind of socialize young murid and older murid in the city so that murid values would be still relevant to them and useful to them. And that ethos, which is also rooted in murid kind of education, get carried over from the uh, cities of Senegal to the cities of Central Africa and West Africa and then to Europe and then later in the 19, uh, 1980s uh, to the United States mm -hmm. and elsewhere. I have a question for you, Sheikh. Uh, a lot of Americans don't know much about Islam and even less about uh, Africa. And it seems to me that uh, one of the really interesting parts of your story is the Africanization of Islam. Mm -hmm. uh, can you simply uh, explain uh, how the Muridiyah is an example of the Africanization of Islam? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one, one, one thing that, that Hamadou Bamba did, and I hope, that's, uh, you know, I hope that my book shows clearly that this is a man who um, actually thought a lot about Islam and thought a lot about his society and thought a lot of ways of making Islam relevant to this society and helping his society. Um, and one way of doing that was um, devising the type of education I talk about, which address specific needs within the society itself. The, th the second way of doing it was how to teach Islam to people, uh, to move beyond the uh, um, formal school that we know with the madrasas and the kutab or, or Karanic school, but to kind of develop a system that can adapt to an oral culture. And how do you do that? You do that by using people's languages in two different ways. One is by using Arabic to write, Wolof. But the second way is really oral teaching, which Amadou Bamba did a lot. He talked a lot, um, translated Islamic principles in Wolof languages and making sure that that translation responds to local needs, but also is meaningful to those people 
those people because he used concepts and idioms that people in that society are actually familiar with. Was it hard to write a history of the Muridia as an insider? What were some of the advantages and perhaps disadvantages of doing so? It was not easy. It, it's actually hard because, you know, um, as I tried to say in the book, um, when people, uh, as a scholar, when you come to a community and then they see you as a member of the community, they expect a behavior from you. They expect you to behave the same way that they would behave. And then they, they don't see the, you know, the, the kind of epistemological break that may exist between their own way of seeing history, which may be a hagiographic type of history or maybe, maybe a history of commemoration, of celebration. Um, and then the history that you want to do, which is a history that is discursive, that is asking a lot of questions that can be critical, that can that try to interpret, that don't only kind of register what is going on, but try to understand why is it that the way it is. It is not always easy to do that. So, uh, 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 but there is some, 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 some advantages. Uh, the advantages is that then you can build trust much easier than an outsider. That uh, when you spend some time with people talking about him, uh, about them, using the same kind of worldview that they have, they may uh, in the long run accept you and talk to you in the way that they would not talk, uh, talk to others. The other thing is that, well, you, you've got cultural keys to decode the messages, which is another problem that somebody who's an insider may not understand because people talk in a culturally coded way. Um, you know, it's not only about speech. It's not about words. It's also about a co coded, a coded speech. So that if you are from the culture, you may have the keys actually to decode those those cultural kind of um, um, element that tend to to code the speech. So I, I think it's uh, it, it's 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 helpful in the in the, to the extent that you open up people when you are able to build the trust uh, first and second. It really uh, kind of um, give you the tools to understand the discourse, to understand the kind of meta-discourse, what is meant in the speech, which is not um, specifically expressed, but which, because you understand the culture, can actually decode. And one thing that was helpful to me is that since I really understand the culture, I also understand that there is a meta-narrative, you know, a, a bigger murid narrative of the history, but there are also those dissonant discourses you know, that, that exist within the Muridia, that have a certain tension with the meta-narrative. So I was able to identify those streams and then really tap into them. And it was uh, quite, uh, it helped me a lot understand um, history that I would not have understand otherwise, uh, and which actually would be very difficult for an outsider to understand. We're talking with Sheikh Babu, the author of Fighting the Greater Jihad, Amadou Bamba, and the founding of the Muridiya of Senegal, 1853 to 1913, freshly published by the Ohio University Press in the New African Histories uh, series. What should uh, American students and, and non-specialists alike take away from your book? Well, one thing is, is, is you know, um, I hope this will help them understand that Islam is diverse. Uh, to, not to see Islam as an essence and not to confuse Islam with Arab culture and Middle Eastern culture. I hope that they understand that Islam is very diverse, that actually it's not very different from the many Christian denominations. Well, there are differences, of course, because Islam has these core principles, you know, the Quran and all of that. But I think if you look at it, it's really part of human experience. And for Islam to be meaningful to people, 
uh, it's necessary for people to adapt it to their local culture and to understand it. This doesn't mean that there are many Islams with an S, but this does mean that in Islam, like in any system of belief, you have a sort of dogma, but you have a lot going on around that dogma. You have the everyday religions practice of people and some aspects of those religion of everyday, that is not the dogma actually, can be shaped by people. I hope that by reading this book, they will understand that, well, you can expect something different in, in, in West Africa, something different in Indonesia, something different in Malaysia, something different in Saudi Arabia and Iran, although all of them claim to be of the same religion, all of them pray the same five prayers, see the Quran and so forth. But beside the dogma and those scriptural aspects of Islam, there is the real Islam of the historian of the people. That is the Islam that people live every day, which really shape their life. And that Islam is much more complicated than what people would claim is, what the Imam, for example, or the Ulama would say is Islam. Any final thoughts? I think we could end on that, that note. I think that, that that's very eloquent, that it is the same Islam, but it takes a, a different shape, just as Christianity and Judaism and Hinduism and so forth do in their particular environments, which makes them no less valuable uh, as expressions of the faith. But, uh, we all need to understand the diversity of religious expression, and we especially need in these days post 9-11 to understand the diversity of Islam and that what some people say is Islam is, is really a distortion of that main tradition. That was David Robinson with Sheikh Babu, and this is Peter Alegi for Africa Past and Present. Thank you, Sheikh. Thank you very much, Peter. <laughs> <laughs>
www.edu. Thanks for listening.